Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Just Work Podcast. I am Kim Scott, Wesley Faulkner's co-host and author of the book, Just Work. And I'm Kim Scott's co-host, Wesley Faulkner, developer advocate and uh, all-around nice guy. Um, Joining us today is our guest, uh, Jessica Nordell. Jessica, can you please introduce yourself? I am Jessica Nordell. I'm a journalist, a science writer, speaker, and the author of a book called The End of Bias, A Beginning, which looks at what has been shown to actually change people's behavior to behave in less biased and discriminatory ways and ways that are more fair, just, and humane. I love that. And I'm going to depart from our scheduled program and ask for some some radical candor, Jessica, from you, if that's okay. Sure, go ahead. Since you're an expert on ending bias, I want to share with you some advice that I give to leaders in the book, Just Work. One of the things that I recommend they do is to roll out a bias disruptor program. And the idea is that that they should take three steps with their teams. The first step is to sit down and come up with a shared vocabulary. What's the word or phrase that people will use to disrupt bias in the moment? So I like a purple flag, uh, but other teams have thrown up a peace sign or said yo or said ouch. Whatever it is, the point is your team needs to figure out what they're going to say when they don't know what to say, because it's hard to disrupt bias. So that's number one, is an aid for the people who want to disrupt bias, whether they're the upstander or the person uh, harmed by the bias. The second thing is to help the people who are biased. (laughs) Compassion for everyone in this, because... I don't know about you, but when someone says to me that I've said or done something biased, I feel ashamed. And I rarely respond at my best when I feel ashamed. So a script can be a useful way out of that. So something along the lines of, thank you for pointing it out. I get it. I'm going to work on not doing it again. Or thank you for pointing it out. I don't get it. And that second part is really hard to say because like now I'm doubly ashamed. I'm ashamed because I'm I've harmed someone and I'm ashamed because I'm ignorant. I don't know what I did wrong. And we want to help people get through those moments because those are tough moments. We want everyone to feel included, invited in. To Bias is a pattern and we can change the pattern if we work together. And then the third part is a shared commitment to disrupting bias in every meeting. So let's promise, let's do this. Let's promise ourselves. You don't have to wave a purple flag, but bias. Let's just say bias if we notice it. Because I promise you, before this is over, I'm going to say something biased, unfortunately. And so we we want to make sure that we're disrupting that pattern and that we're committed to doing it. Because if nobody says anything, what it usually means is not that there was no bias in the meeting, but that people didn't feel comfortable or they didn't notice. So lay it on me. What do you think? I think, um, I think they're really interesting hi- hypotheses. I'm especially intrigued by the idea of waving a, waving a purple flag because it can be really hard to know what to say in yes. the moment, in real time. And so having kind of like a nonverbal way to, to express that you feel like something isn't right, I think yes. is, is really valuable. Um, so, so my background is, uh, is in science um, as a science writer. And, and long ago, I, I did physics and I'm always interested in kind of what the data says. So my 
you know, my kind of angle on these bias interventions is to always ask what measurably changes people's behavior or what measurably creates the goals that we're looking for, whether it's a culture that feels better for people or, you know, fewer experiences of discrimination or, you know, people feeling more included, whatever the, whatever the goal is, like it, the question is, is this intervention actually getting us toward our goal in a measurable way? So what I would be curious about is to test out these interventions that you're describing and then do some measurements, you know, see what happens if you do a randomized trial, uh, what is the impact of this? And I would want to look at the impact on people from marginalized groups and whether they feel after a period of time um, of, of, you know, after a period of time that this intervention has been taking place, do they feel that the, the environment has improved? Do they feel like there's less discrimination or do they feel like it's easier to talk about? Um, is, you know, is, is it less um, sort of stigmatized to bring up you know, these, yeah. these sort of issues. I would want to look and see if the people who are being called out or called in, however oh, you want to say it, you know, um, whether they feel like this is an opportunity to learn and grow and change, or conversely, do they feel more alienated and defensive? And I would want to look and see kind of generally, you know, what the climate is like, what, how people feel at this company or this organization. Do they feel... Like there are, you know, improved opportunities for all people to participate and to have their ideas acted upon. And do people feel like they're included in a meaningful way? You know, not in a like, you got a birthday card for your birthday yeah. way, but like, are you actually given opportunities to have real influence? Those are the things I'd want to look at to test whether your approach works. I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to make you, I'm going to ask a question and no is always a fine answer from a friend. But I, you know, I am not a scientist. I studied Russian literature, Slavic literature and languages. Uh, so I would love to work with you on a project. Let's prove it or disprove it. I'm, and I'm equally happy to have my hypothesis <laughs> disproven as proven. It's more what information, right? It's useful yeah. information yeah, if you're wrong. It's always useful. good to know if you're wrong. I mean, better to know than not to know. Uh, so at some point, if you have time, there's a client that, that we have uh, that would be a great client to run a test on. If you have any interest in helping me design the test, that would be incredible. That would be really interesting. And I think my radically candid response is, may I think about it? <laughs> and because <laughs> and, and, I, would, I would love to do it. And I love new collaborators. And I love like exciting new, unusual projects. So the, the question is just whether I have time, honestly. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about what that might look like because it would be fun to work together. And I'm always, I mean, the reason that I wrote this book was that I really wanted to know like what changes behavior. And there there's not as much data out there as I as the, we would like, you know, because a lot of interventions are never tested. So it would be a cool opportunity to actually get some more information about what works. Amazing. All right, Wesley, thank you for making this valuable introduction. I was going to say that also um, the testing really does matter because even if it seems like it's really good, like I heard studies about ban the box where you can say whether or not you're previously 
incarcerated or not. And if you remove that box, actually, it really hurts minorities uh, as a reflection of oh. saying, I don't want to take a chance of someone being incarcerated. So if they sound, if their name sounds anything ethnic, I'll just going to say that, maybe purple mm-hmm. flag that, um, then I am not going to even approve this resume to get someone in the system that could be um, someone who could have been in the system. And so that is one thing where it seems like, oh, this will give people more opportunities. But in fact, when you tested it, it actually removed opportunities. Wow. That is such a good example. I love that example. And it's absolutely like a perfect example of unintended consequences, you know, well-meaning effort that then had this completely opposite effect. Another example that I think of is the way the mental health system has really tried to move toward a more sort of biophysiological explanation for mental health distress. And so conditions that we call like bipolar or schizophrenia um, are described increasingly in like very biological terms. You know, doctors say things like this is like diabetes. You know, it's a condition that has to be managed just like diabetes. But what the research shows is actually the more we describe things like those sorts of mental health conditions as biological, that actually people feel there's more stigma attached to those conditions. It was thought that this would decrease stigma, but in fact, it increases stigma. So um, just to underscore what Wesley said about unintended consequences and the importance of testing these things out. Yeah, because the last thing, uh, above all, do no harm. That's the <laughs> that's the first goal. Uh, love it. Okay, Wesley, should we should we do the reading quickly? Yes, let's get into it really. Quickly. Okay, so what I'd love to do is just read the really the first page of the introduction, very first page of the rewritten book, Jessica and Wesley and Jessica. You can both like react to it, and then I want to jump into your story, Jessica. Sound good? Great. All right. When you write a book about feedback, you're bound to get a lot of it. In 2017, I published a book called Radical Candor, which made the case for open direct feedback, but only when paired with real compassion for the other person and a commitment to help them improve. Hands down, the best feedback I got on the book came from Michelle, who'd been a colleague for the better part of a decade. I liked and respected Michelle enormously and was thrilled when she invited me to give a talk about Radical Candor to the tech startup where she was CEO. When I finished giving the presentation, Michelle pulled me aside and said, Kim, I'm excited to roll out Radical Candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of innovative culture we need to succeed. But I got to tell you, as soon as I give anyone even the most gentle, compassionate criticism, I get accused of being an angry black woman. Now, I'd been in innumerable meetings with Michelle. I'd never once heard her raise her voice or even seem annoyed, let alone angry. She's objectively one of the most even-keeled, cheerful people I've ever met. Calling her angry and following that up with black and woman was no small hint that something other than an objective assessment was going on with what pe- with the people who called her that. Michelle's experience helped me realize that I'd not written or talked much about how often feedback is tainted by bias, prejudice, and bullying but it wasn't clear what was driving them to make such unfair accusations or why. Thoughts, reactions. Oh yeah. I mean, (laughs) that, um, that story 
made me think about some of you know my workplace experiences that really gave me a lot of fire to to write this book you know one of the reasons that i got really interested in this subject was because i was i was living out you know these sorts of experiences like i remember i'll just tell you a personal anecdote while i was this was many years ago but while i was sort of building up my career as a writer i also worked in corporate settings so i worked for branding consultancies and creative agencies doing um, work on kind of business innovation. And I remember when one, one setting, there was, I had a colleague who was kind of a outspoken, kind of saucy guy who always said what he meant and everyone loved him. Um, he was just like a star of the company. And I kind of thought, okay, well, I, that give, you know, that gives me permission to also be really outspoken and share people, share what I think with people. Yeah. So I started to, you know, be, be myself, you know, um, share candidly what I thought about projects, express my honest opinions and meetings. And I got pulled aside and told that I was being abrasive Ugh. and too aggressive. And I needed to tone it down because I was making people feel uncomfortable. And I remember thinking, like, what are you talking about? This other guy is, like, way more out there than I am. And so I remember having a meeting with my boss about this because he was giving me this performance feedback that I was, be you know, I was too much. And I said, could you explain to me the difference between my behavior and the behavior of this male colleague? And my boss was silent. He just <laughs> looked at me. And I could see sort of the gears turning, you know, like it was sort of dawning on him that I was getting completely different feedback for similar behavior. Was the that other, silence awkward oh, go ahead, for Wesley. you? I was like, was that silence more awkward for you or for them? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I remember being kind of, you know, worked up and it was all I could do to, to ask the question in a calm way because I was angry that I was being... How did you, way. how did you think of asking that? That was the perfect question. Like, where did that come to you from? Well, I'd been sort of stewing about this for a while because I'd been getting, you know, this feedback and I thought, I don't know what, I don't know how to respond. I don't know what to say. Um, and so I think, you know, I'd, I'd sort of found that awkward situations can often be addressed with questions or difficult, mm -hmm. you know, having yeah. difficulty with someone can often be addressed as a question. So I think that's why it occurred to me to ask that question. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened next? What, what did, <sighs> did, what did your boss acknowledge that this was un, unjust? You know, I wish I could report that there was like some wonderful, you know, shining insight and everything changed. Um, he he later acknowledged, you know, that maybe there was something going on, uh, but I I wouldn't say that anything dramatically changed. Yeah. I mean, the the other thing that that your story reminded me of, though, was a similar experience I had, just sort of highlighting how different people are, you know, responded to in different ways. I was at a company where there was a lot of like group team projects, and. What I found was that my ideas would often get attributed to somebody else, usually a guy. Yeah. Yes. 
common the pattern. Heat. I mean, all these things are very eating. common patterns. What did you say? Heap eating. Heap eating, right. So my work would get attributed to somebody else and the, the higher ups would then think, oh, this guy, this guy came up with this idea that we then used for this client that the client loved. And so I thought, okay, well, the solution to this, I was so naive. I thought the solution is to be very vocal about which contributions are mine. <laughs> so I started saying, you know, I just want you to know that th this was my idea and this was my idea. Well, then I started getting feedback that I wasn't being a team player. Uh, it's like turtles, you know, it's bias on top of bias. On right, top so there of was bias. like, no way, like my choice was either, okay, let my ideas be attributed to somebody else, not get any credit, you know, not get all the things that go with getting credit or, you know, be, um, be chastised for, for being too, you know, self promoting. Yeah. Yeah. So frustrating. So Wesley. <laughs> Jessica and I are white women. You're a black man. How does this play out for you? I mean, I imagine that these biases play out differently for for different people depending on uh, on identity. How how does this play out for you? Eerily similar. It's the same thing. It's that's like um, I feel like uh, one of those movies like Groundhog's Day where you're like, yeah, all right, well I'll try something different, and then the outcome seems to always. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to always turn out the same way. Um, it's really, really hard. And I think that the, the, if there's not someone looking for the flaw in the system that's in the position of power, then the, the outlier or the person at fault is the person that they have identified. And so they will not look at the system, but just look at the individual. And so I feel that um, when you are a person of color or a, a someone who's marginalized in a specific area, you're the thing that's the odd one out of the whole thing. And so if something's not, if the cohesion's not there, mm -hmm. if things feel like off, then it's easier to point to the thing that sticks out like a sore thumb. And um, yeah, and that's usually me. And uh, I think I found a formula now where if you mature enough in both your industry and um, being able to not internalize it, which is a, is a big big thing that's not yeah. as easily said rather than done yeah. it makes it easier to survive and and when i say survive i mean it's mentally but also um survive having a job uh, with these conflicts or being able to navigate these difficulties so so jessica i one of the best things i read on that we'll talk about the abrasive thing in a second but on the problem of other people claiming credit for your ideas and your work or either or another version is oh you know, you did that, so it must not have been that hard, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, or, and you did that, so you got lucky. You yeah, succeeded at that, yeah, so you must be yeah. really lucky, not like yeah. insanely hardworking and skilled. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So there's a, there was a, a Twitter thread by an, uh, an engineering director at Google. Um, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing it pronouncing his name right, Mecca or Akeki. Oh, yeah, and, I know Mecca. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so have you read his thread on the difficulty anchor? I don't think so. So the what he said is that if he said, yo, under, or maybe he didn't say yo, I'm, these are my words, not his, but uh, he said to underrepresented folks out there, no matter in what way you're underrepresented, Mecca is a black man. He said, if, if you find that, that your work is getting dismissed as trivial or that other people are claiming credit for your work, the solution is to find a difficulty anchor. 
look around your company and find someone who is very well respected and known as being tough, kind of a hard ass. And ask when you're before you embark on a project, ask that person to to uh, to help you to be sort of a, a mentor for you on the on the project. And then when and and explain to them a couple of times the the problem that you're trying to solve. And then when people say it's easy, if your difficulty anchor is in the room, that person will say, oh, no, that was not easy. That was hard. These, and, and, then, and then they're going to sort of uh, lend some of their credibility to you. I thought it was such practical, good advice. I really It's really practical. That. And at the same time, I feel, I mean, I feel like my, my whole, uh, the, the reason that I wrote this book was that I don't want people to have to do that. You know, like yeah, one yeah, of no, the Mecca the, says that too, right? So putting the constantly putting the burden on people who are already you know, yes. burdened, like not only are you experiencing these unfair, you know, moments at work, but now it's your responsibility to figure out how to fix them. I mean, I remember talking to one of the people I interviewed for my book was a is a mid career engineer um, in aerospace. Mm-hmm. And she is an African-American woman who has been the only African-American woman in all of the work settings that she's uh, yeah. been in. And she she told me that she spends about half of her work work hours figuring out how to do things like get correct credit for her work, make sure she's invited to meetings yeah. that she needs to be. I mean, it's, tax. it's basically an additional part-time job. And I just, that makes me crazy. It's like yes. so unfair. So I, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate these, you know, ingenious workarounds like what Mecca described, but I also would like to live in a world where that wasn't necessary. Yes. And, and that was how Mecca started his thread, which is this shouldn't be necessary, but if you don't, so, so. I think we should give some advice for bosses as as to how to make sure this kind of stuff is not happening. Because like you, I had a boss. By the way, a second ago, I waved the purple flag. So some some feedback I got also on Twitter is that I tend to use the word crazy when what I really mean is it frustrates me or, you know, and, uh, and I think just in the spirit of being aware of mental health issues, like using that, that metaphor can be, did uh, I say, be... did I say crazy? I don't think yes. I even noticed it. Oh, thank you for point. Well, I appreciate you pointing That's it out. I didn't even, so that is an example of unexamined bias, right? I didn't even notice that I was saying it. So thank you for, for I I it. actually noticed that I used the word that word earlier in our conversation before we started recording. And I thought I should have waved the purple flag on myself, but but I but I didn't even the even I have the a purple component. a purple That's marker good. here. Purple marker is <laughs> I'm sure I will I even though I got that feedback years ago, I still use the words. I like, and, and that's part of this. We need to be patient, but also persistent with ourselves. Like changing these habits of, of language is going to take some time. It's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, agreed. Yes. Very much. So one of, but, but before I disrupted the bias, uh, you were saying that it's, it's unfair that people should have to spend this much time figuring out how to navigate around. And I totally agree. So, so yeah, one I of, mean, it's sort of, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I remember, um, 
you know, like one of the pieces of advice in the book Lean In was that like in order to not be seen as too assertive, women should wear kind of soft sweaters, sort of like soft of this. <laughs> really? Oh my gosh. I I can't believe that was in the I helped edit. I would have if I had noticed that, I would have struck it. Uh, Here's how is, you could be more palatable to the fragile egos in the room. Right, right. But I, t- but at the same time, like I appreciate what she was trying to do with that book, which is like give people tools, like Mecca. You know, giving people tools that they yeah. can use because we don't live in. You know, this is the world that we live in. So how do you deal with the fact that you're in a job right now with specific limitations? I, I mean, that that's a, it's a real it's a real yes. challenge. So I don't want to. Yes dismiss yeah. that either yeah no and it's so interesting it's sort of like in just work i i i write for people harmed people who cause harm for upstanders people who observe this stuff happening and for leaders and it's it feels almost like a whack-a-mole problem because as soon as i'm talking about <laughs> what leaders should do people were like well that's useless because my leader is useless and i'm like okay we'll go to the chapter on person harmed well, but I shouldn't have to do that. I'm like, yes, but like, we, we have to start somewhere, right? It's hard. Totally. Yeah. All right, Wesley, uh, you are on a podcast with two loud women. I want to make sure that we're, <laughs> that we're not talking over you. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are, it's, I agree that there needs to be two ways of being able to deal with the situation that you have rather than wish you were in a situation that was fair. And when I try to tell people this, I make sure that I really front load it saying, this is not your responsibility. This Mm -hmm. is not something you need to do, but this is a way that you can at least have a framework of dealing with some of this stuff, which is Mm -hmm. important to to understand of this is how you can make sense of it so you can navigate it. One thing that is really doubly harmful, especially with the aerospace engineer example, is that in the realm of mental or knowledge work, where that's kind of why you're there, is to have the thoughts, have the thinking, and put things together, that that mental tax or that mental fatigue that comes along with that really degrades your work, which also starts a spiral with underperforming and then reinforcing negative stereotypes that then later causes you to underperform and to possibly lose your job. And so the, the, that is one of the things that I, I try to arrest, but burnout happens all, all the time. But especially when you are in a place of high pressure um, and you're relying on your mental acuity to kind of get yourself through. But then at the same time, the environment that you're put in is putting in this grating manner. So I basically what I'm saying is I agree with everything you said, and uh, I'm stealing your idea and taking credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to get a thought from both of you about something leaders can do about the abrasive problem, because this has uh, this in particular resonates for me because because I've been uh, I've been accused of that um, uh, and <laughs> and by managers like in the guise of feedback and it was like you know anyway uh, I was told are you aware of the competence likability bias and I wasn't they explained it to me this manager and then I thought 
the the aha was so I should fix the bias in the other people. And instead, my my boss said to me, "So try to be more likable." I'm like, "You missed the whole point." And this is not a stupid man. He was quite brilliant, actually, but but had had you know some areas of unawareness, shall we say? And so one of the things that is helpful that leaders can do is to use Textio for uh, for for performance feedback. And Textio will flag words like that, like like abrasive and and get prompt people to think, you know, would you be saying of of a, a white man, like if my husband behaved the same way that Michelle did in that story, he'd be called a very reasonable. Oh yeah. A real go-getter, right? Yeah. 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 And I, as a white woman, I might be called a badass, but which would have some negative connotation and some positive connotation, you know, but, but for Michelle, it was all, people were all negative about it. And, and so beginning to, beginning to point this out to people, uh, in, in, in the work where they're, you know, when they are doing the thing, either when they're in the meeting and wave the purple flag or in the performance review, like have the word turn purple. Actually, it turns red uh, in Texio, which which is great. I mean, it's very effective. I don't know. What do you think about that intervention that uh, on on the part I, of leaders? Jessica, I think you mentioned it in chapter nine of your book. Actually, yeah, I love I love Kieran Snyder's work, um, who who created Textio, and I love her. She did that great evalu- a study of performance evaluation. Yes, where that she article found- was so oh, it was amazing. <laughs> Where she found that, like, you know, women in their performance feedback, I don't remember the exact numbers, but are are given feedback on their personalities, like, 70% of the time, and men are, like, barely given feedback yeah. about their personalities, which yeah. is amazing. I mean, it reminded me of, um, also, of, of the Ellen Powell trial and the way Ellen yes. Powell was described as being really abrasive and aggressive, but also shy and too retiring. I mean, it was like, people could figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's I think that's super valuable. Yeah, giving you know doing sort of a, a real analysis of the language to see what um, what words are are being used to describe people from different backgrounds. And I, I, think I love it. On, on that note, that was a great way to end the show. I would like to say thank you so much, Jessica, for being on the podcast. It's great having you here. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about where people can find out more about you and your book? Absolutely. So my book is available anywhere, anywhere you like to buy books, indie bookstores, online. Um, you can find me on Substack. I have a Substack newsletter that's interviews with fascinating people that I publish about once a month. Um, it's called Who We Are to Each Other. And I talk about uh, how we can all become more human, trustworthy, and free. And you can find me on my website, which is jessicanordell.com. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having so, me. Thank you. So so if you enjoyed this and you, listener, have a story that you would like to share with us, we would love to hear your story. And if you want to be on the podcast, we would invite you to be on the podcast. Send us a note, hello at justworktogether.com and let us know your stories. I think one of 
The things I really admire about Wesley is his ability to build community and solidarity. And I think that is how we're going to solve these problems, no matter what role we play. And thank you, Kim. And thank you for the compliment. And what I like about you is that you are a, a person that tells it like it is. And it's really great to have radical can- uh, feedback. And we would like your radical feedback as well. So if you would like to rate us on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great to let us know how we're doing. You can also send us feedback at hello at justworktogether.com. All right. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see you next time. Take care.